This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 10, Law Number 4, Iterations. I'm sitting in a conference room named Chubby Hubby at the world headquarters of Ben & Jerry's in Burlington, Vermont, a room that, like many of the conference rooms here, is named after one of the company's best-known ice cream flavors. My trip to this quirky state has so far lived up to my expectations. The gift shop at the hotel where I was staying sold both Ben & Jerry's ice cream and Vermont maple syrup. I saw electric cars everywhere on the city streets. In Ben & Jerry's parking lot, there was even a Ben & Jerry's branded Tesla. The office was designed back in 1996, yet it has the feel of a Silicon Valley startup. Long before Google and Facebook, Ben & Jerry's built an iconoclastic culture. Dogs are welcome in the office, as my visit was punctuated by periodic barks and a massive red slide by the main entrance transports employees from the second floor conference room down to the first. In addition, there's a huge gym, which helps to counteract the Ben 10, a yoga room, and a private nursing room named the Milky Way. I'd come to Vermont to spend the day observing the Ben & Jerry's creative process. I grew up in a household where their ice cream was more than just a dessert. For my mother, after a long day at work, it was therapy, a chance to unwind. As I made my way around the building, I couldn't help noticing empty pints of ice cream on every desk. Employees collected the flavors they worked on as a sort of cardboard trophy wall. Ben & Jerry's has had so many flavors that I assumed the process for creating one was by now efficient and direct. A food scientist would come up with the flavor idea, turn up a, back, a batch of the concoction, sample it, then supply an all-important verdict of thumbs up or thumbs down. There would assuredly be consultation with other teams, but otherwise, the process would be straightforward. Begin with a delicious ice cream base, add some cookies, throw in some caramel, and voila, another new flavor takes its place on the Ben & Jerry's roster. Instead, I found out that making new ice cream is a serious business at Ben & Jerry's. I spent all day learning the four steps that Ben & Jerry's uses to create the ideal new flavor. And, as we'll discuss, I couldn't help but realize that this same process is used not just for making ice cream, but for other types of creative endeavors I had witnessed. The company's first store, which the founders opened in 1978, was a retrofitted gas station in Burlington. Jerry Greenfield, the Jerry of Ben & Jerry's, explained to me that in many ways, the venture was born of necessity. Quote, Ben and I started the ice cream shop because we wanted to work together, do something fun, because we always liked to eat, and because we were failing at the other things we were trying to do. End quote. They had taken a $5 remote education class in how to make ice cream, and, armed with their newfound expertise, they decided to open up shop. In no time at all, they were a local phenomenon. Today, the company founded by two Burlington hippies is known around the world for its decadently rich flavors, including Chunky Monkey, my mother's favorite, Cherry Garcia, and Fish Food. Jerry's all-time favorite is the now-discontinued coconut almond fudge chip. He recalled, quote, It was like a trip to the tropical beach for the mind in taste buds, end quote. But what I wanted to know was how the brand comes up with their flavors, and, while on the subject, who comes up with them? 
every year, Ben & Jerry's launches 6 to 12 new flavors. This means that they are under continual pressure to create new products that land at the right point of the creative curve. But how had they operationalized this within their business? It turns out that they have devised a repeatable system for achieving the vaunted sweet spot, pun very much intended, of familiarity and novelty. When I probed more deeply, I was introduced to a few individuals who may have the best job in America, the Ben & Jerry's Flavor Gurus. Ice Cream Tears I was sitting in the flavor lab in the Ben & Jerry's headquarters with tears running down my face. These were not tears of joy nor sadness. The flavor, the flavor lab was packed with flavor gurus, Ben & Jerry's term for the food scientists and chefs whose job it is to create new ice cream flavors. In their civilian lives, all the gurus are pretty serious foodies. Some are former restaurant chefs, others are chemists, yet they all have a pronounced knack for creating flavors. And at this one moment, one flavor guru, Natalia, was using the lab stove to prepare a spicy lunch that looked delectable, but was murder on my eyes. Wiping away my tears, I asked the team to walk me through the process of how they create new ice cream flavors. My fantasy was that the group spent all day and all night experimenting with and eating tons of ice cream as they waited for a perfect combination of tastes and textures to click. Even though it's true that lots of ice cream is eaten in the lab, including by me, the actual process for creating flavors is complex and highly scientific. There are numerous stakeholders, shocking amounts of data, and an implicit utilization of the creative curve. One reason why the process is so methodical is that it takes a long time, 18 to 24 months, to create a new flavor. This means that the flavor gurus not only have to get a handle on what customers like today, but what they'll probably like in two years from now. I was able to identify four distinct steps in their process, conceptualization, reduction, curation, and feedback. I wasn't surprised to realize that this pattern also recurs across all kinds of creative curves and fields. During the first step, ideation, their goal is to come up with as many potential flavor ideas as possible. As they assemble this list, they consume, sometimes literally, numerous sources on food trends in the search for ideas. The team, for example, might embark on a trend trek, which, invo which involves traveling to another city to experience not just its ice cream, but its food and drinking culture. While on the trip, a pack of gurus will descend on a grocery store to observe what people are buying, or go inside restaurants to take note of the flavors that people are eating, or take a seat at one bar after the next to find out what bartenders are mixing into the latest cocktails. As flavor guru Chris explains, quote, You get up in the morning and you start eating, and you eat all day. You keep eating, and at the end of the day you go to dinner, and you keep eating. You're just engulfing yourself in that food world, end quote. Chris, who is surprisingly skinny for an ice cream creator, thanks to a biking obsession, gives me an example from a trip to Portland a few years earlier. When the team wandered out of their hotel, they stumbled across a nearby bar that offered a big stock of infused gins. One gin in particular struck out, or stuck out, blueberry lavender, and the gurus were blown away by its flavor. They returned to Vermont, determined to recreate that flavor. Recalls Chris, quote, We asked our suppliers if they could replicate those flavor concepts or those flavor combinations, and it worked, end quote. Less than two years later, 
Ben and Jerry's released their own signature blueberry lavender ice cream as part of the company's Greek yogurt line. But ideas and inspiration don't just derive from travel. The team also uses the internet as well as traditional magazines to uncover trends. Flavor guru Eric, who is lovingly called Angry Chef, checks Tasting Table, a website that publishes menus from new restaurants all across America. Sarah, a relatively new flavor guru, finds Instagram a useful tool for spotting trends that are populating social feeds, including giant milkshakes with all kinds of crazy toppings. For other gurus, magazines like Bon Appetit or Food and Wine are essential reads. This consumption allows the company to understand which ideas are on the early upswing of the creative curve. The gurus also have a lot of in-house support, including an internal consumer insights team tasked with researching the latest trends. All year, the insights team and the entire company share their ideas through an internal Facebook group dubbed The Flavorhood, where company employees can post interesting recipes, food concepts, and insights on what competitors are doing that captured their attention. Last, but importantly, Ben & Jerry's solicit flavor ideas from its customers. The company has a full-time team staffing the phones in Vermont. When customers phone in or email suggestions, those suggestions are tracked and handed over to the brand management team, which looks at anywhere from 10 to 12,000 ideas every year. Many of these customer-supplied ideas have become flavors. For example, my morning conference room was named after one of them, the pretzel-laden chubby hubby flavor, which came about when a Ben & Jerry's customer attempted to play a practical joke at work by adding pretzels to a Ben & Jerry's pint and giving it to a co-worker, informing her that it was the company's latest flavor. The company not only believed the story, but she also found it delicious. All these sources of information allow the team to observe trends early in their life cycle, which is imperative given the company's nearly two-year-long innovation cycle. After all, if Ben and Jerry's dreamt up concepts, flavors, once they re reached the point of, of cliché, those flavors would be out of date by the time they went to market. In 2016, the company launched a non-dairy ice cream using almond milk. All the lactose-intolerant people could rejoice. A brand manager told me that the gurus had observed a growing interest in almond milk years earlier, but only recently had it moved beyond its niche health food status into the mainstream, along with the dairy-disavowing paleo diet. Eric says, quote, we track things from infancy, end quote. In short, the Ben & Jerry's flavor gurus, brand managers, and markets do not trust their raw instincts. Instead, they recognize that their goal is simple, to listen to their audience. It's a deceptively simple paradigm, but one that's easy for successful people to ignore as their confidence grows. In their search for burgeoning trends, the Ben & Jerry's team benefits from a wide variety of input, and by ingesting data from a variety of sources, they're conducting their own form of consumption. So, once they have digested these trends, how do the gurus come up with ideas worth trying? This next step is where constraints play a critical role. Conceptualization Ice cream is based on chemistry. As Eric told me, if the ingredients are not in balance, then you don't get that smooth, creamy texture. Too much protein, and it's chalky. Too much sugar solids, and it doesn't freeze hard, end quote. Ben & Jerry's also has a policy that products must have fewer than 250 calories and under 25 grams of sugar per serving. 
These constraints create a familiar baseline for what Ben & Jerry's ice cream should taste like, allowing them to create the right amount of novelty. What's, what's more, since Ben & Jerry's is focused on, and their consumers have come to expect, social justice, the company's ingredients must be non-GMO sourced by origin, fair trade, and kosher certified. As a result, the gurus may only create flavors whose ingredients meet or surpass that high bar, meaning that the team is in contact with its suppliers year-round to understand what is available. Ben & Jerry's also has manufacturing constraints to worry about. Breaking these constraints can have serious consequences. If you've ever mixed chocolate with your movie theater popcorn, you already know how delicious that combination is, and the Ben & Jerry's team agreed. The gurus created the flavor in the lab with hopes of blockbuster flavor. Everyone, everybody loved the test batch. But when the company produced the first run and sent it out to stores, the customer service team was inundated with complaints. The popcorn had gotten soggy. It seems that when popcorn spends week in transit going from the factory floor to freezer shelves and then to people's homes, it absorbs the innate moisture of the ice cream. In fact, just about anything that mixes with ice cream gets soft by the time it reaches a home freezer. This softening phenomenon may have been bad for popcorn, but in other ways it is useful. In the lab, I was surprised to find that the cookie pieces Ben & Jerry's uses are, are crunchy. I may have add a few. Yet when you eat one of the Ben & Jerry's cookie-laden flavors, you'll notice that the cookie pieces are soft. The moisture absorption may create a subpar experience with popcorn, but it works in cookies flavor, making them chewy and delicious. The final constraint is shelf space. Ben & Jerry's has a limited variety of pints they can ship, and if they ship too many similar flavors, they run the risk of tiring out their audience. As Dana Wamet, a company R&D manager, told me, quote, A coffee flavor is never going to sell as well as a caramel flavor is, but how many caramel flavors do we, do we need? End quote. Because of these constraints, the research team is able to brainstorm within a smaller universe of possibilities. They take their research, viewed through the lens of their constraints, and come up with a list of 200 flavor profiles, like vanilla ice cream with cherries and fudge flakes. This is what I call the conceptualization stage, where creatives generate a set of plausible ideas. The starting number of 200 is arbitrary, but it is important to come up with a wide range of responsible or reasonable options that can then be refined. Reduction. Which brings us to the next step, editing 200 possibilities to around 15 ideas that are actually worth testing. Artists are traditionally reluctant to let others see their work before it is done. But great creatives in great companies know that the only way to consistently create in the sweet spot of the creative curve is by putting their work before an audience early and often. It is important to do this before investing in creation, narrowing your options to those that have a reasonable probability of success. From there, intuition and judgment usually govern final choices. How does Ben & Jerry's do this? Chunk Mail, the Ben & Jerry's email newsletter, has over 700,000 subscribers, all devout fans of the product. Once the team has assembled the list of 200 flavor profiles, it sends a one-sentence description of these flavors to a representative section of the email list as a survey and asks two questions on a five-point scale for each flavor idea. How likely are you to buy this flavor, and how unique is this flavor? Basically, what the team wants to know is how familiar and novel the flavor choices are. 
In effect, the team is trying to measure the core elements of the creative curve. How likely are you to buy this flavor? asks respondents to compare a new possibility to the flavors they know and love already, which is another way of saying familiarity. Quote, I think if you look at what most people want, it's vanilla ice cream with brownies and caramel or chocolate ice cream flavors with cookies and caramel, end quote, Dana told me. Quote, those are always at the top, and we love to make ice creams with caramel and brownies, end quote. But the challenge for her and the other gurus is to keep moving the brand forward by doing things that are unique but are still interesting enough that people would want to buy them. This is why the question on uniqueness is critical. The goal isn't just finding things that consumers say they would buy, but also things that are novel and have a high enough purchase intent, things, that is to say, at the ideal place of the creative curve. It's not an exact science, but data guides the team on how their audience perceives the 200 proposed flavors. This testing matters, too. Every guru says so. Think about it. If you spend all day dreaming about, working on, and tasting ice cream, you can't really call yourself an accurate representation of the Ben & Jerry's customer. To understand how best to go forward, the gurus need a ream of external input. The question isn't just whether a new flavor will taste good, but rather, will it sell enough pints? From this testing, the team settles on the 15 flavors they believe have the ideal balance of novelty and familiarity. This is the reduction step. To create ideas that stick, you need to go from a wide-ranging list of plausible ideas to a data-driven subset of ideas that have st strong consumer and audience indicators. Your goal is to constantly refine your understanding of where an idea will fall on the creative curve. For many creatives, this early testing can be scary. After all, they risk criticism and rejection, but it's also the only way to predict success. After this data-driven approach, it's time for the third phase of the creative process, curation. This is where the ice cream eating begins. At this point, flavor gurus figure out how to make small batches of the 15 flavors on the list. As Chris explains to me, Quote, initially, it's more of a culinary development process. Sometimes that requires us to go to the local grocery store, buy produce, and make our own fillings, whether it be jam or mint brownies, just to get that creativity flowing, end quote. This aspect matters because the human element matters. Notes one brand manager, quote, so far they've done well on paper, but we've got to make sure that they're actually going to taste good, end quote. After making small, handmade batches of all 15 flavors, the gurus taste them and seek additional feedback from other teams and stakeholders. According to Chris, quote, We have a cutting room where we all come into the room and we'll have 10 or 15 pints that we're scooping through, serving, evaluating, tweaking, and saying, This one's disgusting, and we throw it away, or we just adapt from there. End quote. Soon the gurus will select all the flavors they like. If they can't make up their minds about a certain flavor, they'll often they'll ship samples to longtime customers or taste place tiny batches into their retail, retail stores and see what fans think. This is the curation process. It is when you rely on people, rather than internally or externally, to give you qualitative perspectives. While the surveying is done in the reduction stage, it is useful for getting in the right ballpark you need to gather deeper context to confirm data and intuition. Once they're done curating their final flavors, they begin scaling up production. 
six pints becomes six gallons, which turns into 10,000 gallons. But how do the people who work at Ben & Jerry's know whether they got it right? Feedback. Have you ever had dill pickle ice cream? At one point, as I was talking to the flavor gurus, they told me about a recent experiment where they created sorbet using dill pickle juice. It's excellent, one of them, Eric exclaimed. My poker face broke, replaced by a somewhat shocked look. But before I could say anything or protest, Eric turned to one of his colleagues, saying, just pull it out. It'll temper fairly quickly. This is how I ended up eating a few spoonfuls of a pickle-flavored Ben & Jerry's ice cream. The real surprise, though, was the taste. Dill pickle sorbet is delicious. I don't mean that it's adequate or okay or interesting. I mean it was a go-back-for-seconds-and-thirds-delicious. My mouth is watering just writing about it. So, when will we see pickle flavors on freezer shelves? As you may have guessed, the answer is probably never. As the team has learned, even phenomenal ideas need to be familiar enough to appeal to large audiences. Kombuchas and fermented foods including pickles may be an emerging food trend, but it's not clear that this trend is widespread enough to persuade the gurus that it is ready to advance into the mainstream. As Chris explains, it's a little tough because our development cycle is so long, so the trends that are really quick flashes in the pan, those are really hard for us to get unless we can see them coming way in advance, which is a challenge on its own. We try to get trends, if we see them, right before they start to spike up. Since, among other things, the team is in the business of predicting what customers will want in two years, post-launch feedback is obviously critical to their process. Despite months of planning, testing, and strategizing, their judgment can still be off, and their execution can still get messed up. This is the feedback stage, where creators can gauge if they were in the Creative Curve's sweet spot. To do this, they need more data. The earliest data arrives via phone calls, emails, and social media. Ben & Jerry's eventually receive sales data, but during the early stages, fan reactions, either positive or negative, matter the most. If for some reason they didn't nail a flavor, they need to figure out why. What faulty assumptions led to that failure? When you think about it, the goal of any creative process isn't just to create great results, but also to improve the process itself. The processes themselves are a product that can be tweaked and enhanced. By improving these workflows, creative people not only come up with new ideas faster, they also have a higher likelihood of repeating their success. And because of the way that consumers change their preferences, as illustrated in the creative curve, Ideas that worked once can lose their specialness. Creators need to measure and assess constantly. To this end, Chris tells me, quote, We caught the Greek yogurt trend at the right time, and that was a huge innovation for us, and now we're slowly getting rid of them, end quote. The Ben & Jerry's fan base is moving on to something else. The life and death of flavors is an essential part of the creative process, which is why, toward the end of my trip, I found myself paying a visit to the Flavor Graveyard just up the hill from the factory. There, marked by seriously or surprisingly serious looking tombstones made of Vermont marble, was a testament to all the flavors that have come and gone over the years, including blueberry lavender swirl. The rise and fall of the creative curve brings ideas from nothingness to prominence and back to nothingness again. And that's okay. Creative iterations are critical to making great products of all types. 
That is why, before even starting, creative people need to understand where their ideas will be on the bell curve of popularity. Across the various fields I studied, creative people all had their own methods of refining ideas in order to end up with a short list of those with the highest probability of success. While I don't have a cutesy acronym for this process, in every field creators used the four steps I outlined at Ben & Jerry's. Conceptualization, reduction, curation, and feedback. This iteration process allows anyone to refine their work to find the ideal spot on the creative curve. What does this look like in other fields? Is making ice cream truly the same as, say, making movies? The data of film. One of the most surprising things I learned over the course of my research into creative success was how similar creative processes are across different fields. Writers had similar methods to entrepreneurs. Chefs planned things out the same way in which songwriters do. And movie producers create hit movies the same way that Ben & Jerry's launches new flavors. All commercial creativity, in the end, is about the same thing, creating products that will match and intersect with an audience's taste at a particular point in time. The creative process for making a movie, including the data that goes into crafting the final film, is an excellent example of listening to what an audience wants. Nina Jacobson is one of the most influential people in Hollywood. She previously was the president of Walt Disney Motion Pictures, where she was responsible for shepherding countless hits into theaters, ranging from Pirates of the Caribbean to The Sixth Sense. Today, she is a founder and CEO of Color Force, the production company responsible for the Hunger Games movie franchise that generated $3 billion worldwide. Jacobson and Color Force were also responsible for the award-winning The People vs. O.J. Simpson TV series. When we spoke, Jacobson was in Malaysia filming a new movie called Crazy Rich Asians based on the best-selling book of the same name that now has over 1 million copies in print. Over a crackly cell phone connection, we started talking about how she ended up in Hollywood. Jacobson majored in semiotics at Brown University and described the major as, quote, a little Marxist theory, a little feminist theory, and a little psychoanalytic theory. It's very brown, end quote, she added with a laugh. In college, she also became enchanted by her classes in film theory. Here was a subject that, like semiotics, had infinite layers of complexity, and Jacobson loved it. Quote, the idea of knowledge was that was an endless spiral, and you could keep going deeper and deeper, and you would never get to the end. You would never feel like you'd mastered it, end quote. After graduation, she found her way west, where she soon landed a job as a script reader, reading two scripts a day and writing summaries to studio executives, explaining whether or not a script was worth pursuing. Without knowing it, this was a period of focused consumption. Quote, the more you read, the more you develop the language to articulate the feelings that the work provokes. End quote. In short, Jacobson was absorbing popular taste in the same way our former video clerk sto store clerk turned Netflix head, Ted Sarandos, learned about movies back in Arizona. Recognized for her hard work and keen insights, her career started to take off. And by the time she was 36, she had taken the helm of Walt Disney Motion Pictures Group. In 2007, she founded Color Force. Intrigued by how films and the film industry use iterative processes and data, I called her to find out how studios try to craft the perfect blockbuster. 
Screenwriting comes first. Jacobson explained that the process of screenwriting is far different from a writer sealing themselves up in a remote escape in the woods, emerging after they have typed the words, the end. Instead, the screenwriter, or today several screenwriters, works alongside the producer, the director, and sometimes even the cast. Quote, in the early stages of a script, you may be trying out major changes. What if we got rid of this character entirely? What if we tried this structural approach? End quote. Then, as the big pieces become clear, you start to work on refining the smaller pieces. Are individual scenes working? Does a certain character need more lines? Her goal is, quote, How do I get every scene to fire on multiple cylinders so that the character is advancing, the scene is advancing, and the story is advancing? End quote. These iterations continue throughout the entire process. Until you see the pieces come to life, you can't really know whether or not a script will work which is why Jacobson tries to engage everyone possible in the project. She adds, quote, I think listening is underrated in creativity, end quote. For Jacobson, listening to the audience permeates the entire movie-making process. Even after the film is edited, test screenings can assess how audience re react. Says Jacobson, quote, If you want people to feel the things that you hope and aspire for them to feel, you, have, you want to have an opportunity to find out if they feel those things. Understanding the audience, even experienced, renowned film industry veterans like Nina Jacobson, recognize its importance. I decided that diving into the data behind Hollywood would be a good way to uncover how creatives can best use data in their work. For example, how do test screenings work? Where else has data become part of the film process? Putting you in a box. Traditionally, movie marketers divide film audiences into four quadrants, male, female, over 25 years of age, and under 25. The overriding philosophy, if we can call it that, is that movies and marketing or movie marketing are, are ideally targeted to one or more of these four demographics. For example, a romantic comedy might be aimed at females both over and under 25, whereas a tentpole blockbuster like Avatar can be marketed to all four. Hollywood's Quadrant approach was made popular by the National Research Group, a movie research company founded in 1978 by two former political pollsters who decided to apply their election-winning techniques to the box office. The two co-founders left in the early 2000s, but John Penn, the current CEO of National Research Group, explained to me that the political analogy, quote, I think politics is about finding your base and identifying who your swing voter is. I think that's the same type of framework we bring to movie polling and research, which is who's your base and who is your incremental swing and what's the message that is going to work with both, end quote. For a long time, the Quadrant played a fundamental role in identifying these groups. Penn elaborates, quote, if you think of the Quadrants, it's like a way of how to replicate in politics when you have Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. It's creating a framework so that you can use it as a lens to understand different demographic groups. Today, the Quadrant has undergone a few modifications and is being replaced with more nuanced psycho psychographic groups, like environmentalist norms, image-focused male teenagers, etc. But overall, the critical role of testing is very much a part of the movie business. Hollywood executives use data in three main ways. First, will the target quadrant genuinely enjoy the movie in question? Second, do the trailers and ads appeal to the right group? 
Third, how does the public perceive the movie in the weeks before the opening weekend? Is the buzz good, bad, or neutral? In this way, they can modify their messaging and strategy if necessary. A Fatal Test Janet walked out of the movie theater, looking and feeling bored and tired. It had been a long week. She had just sat through an early preview of Fatal Attraction, and like most of the test audience, she didn't really love it. The main reason? The ending was not satisfying. The movie tells the story of a, of a mistress who becomes obsessed with her lover. In the original version, the mistress kills herself and frames her lover for her own uh, murder. However, it left audiences feeling that the mistress didn't get her due punishment. The studio executive knew that they had a problem, but how would they fix it? Fatal Attraction went on to be nominated for six Academy Awards and generated $320 million at the box office worldwide. Having said that, the version of Fatal Attraction that reached those heights wasn't the same Fatal Attraction that early test audiences saw. To get there, the studio had to reshoot the entire ending. In the new ending, the wife, played by Ann Archer, shoots the one-time mistress, played by Glenn Close, in a riveting bathroom scene, ultimately creating the psycho-thriller ending that defined the film. Previews, or as the trade lingo calls them, recruited audience screenings, have become an essential means of testing new releases. Jacobson explains, quote, Oftentimes it's easy to think, oh, it's so extrinsic to the creative process to ask a bunch of consumers basically what they think. But we're making movies for audiences, so it's actually very helpful to know what they think, end quote. The movie research industry has evolved since the early days of the National Research Group. Kevin Goitz, the founder and CEO of Screen Engine ASI, a leading Hollywood research firm, specializes in recruiting audience screenings and over the years has conducted what he estimates are well over 10,000 previews. I spoke to him to better understand how these screenings worked and whether those practices could be applied outside the movie industry. Studios generally test, hold test screenings once there's, a rough, once there's a rough cut of a film. The music track or a few special effects may be missing, but for the most part, the story and the rhythm of the film are set. In the crowd are men and women who match the target audience, at least based on the preliminary marketing strategy. Fearing that people might record the movie or tweet a spoiler, security is tight. Viewers are asked to sign a confidentiality agreement, leave their phones outside the theater, and pass through a metal detector. When the film ends, audience members fill out a survey card with questions on topics ranging from their favorite characters and scenes to whether the film moved too slowly or too quickly. The two most important questions are, how likely are you to definitely re recommend the movie, and how do you rate the movie overall? The result of this is the quantitative research part of the research can often decide the fate of a film. Will portions of it need to be reshot? Is it worth all those precious marketing dollars? Regarding these survey results, filmmakers and studio executives are looking for movies that score significantly above average, but it's not over yet. Next, a microcosm of the audience is selected to stay in their seats and participate in a discussion so that the studio can better understand the why behind the data. If you are unlikely to recommend a film, why do you say so? Is it because you hated the main character? Did you feel that the plot was dragging on? Goitz says, quote, At a test screening, the focus group is often the intersection of art and science. 
a creative moderator can tease out visceral responses that moviegoers wouldn't necessarily write about in their questionnaires, end quote, quote. This mix of quantitative and qualitative data gives filmmakers and studio executives valuable insights into where the movie works, where it doesn't, and the best ways to fix it. In Goitz's experiment, most filmmakers and executives understand the power and value of testing. Rather than a tool designed to punish filmmaker, Goitz sees the data as a tool for refining audience reaction. Quote, I'd like to think that I approach it in a healthy way. I don't see it as some report card in order to beat people up. But when you're making a motion picture, you're making a picture for a large audience, and particularly when you're doing it for a studio, the stakes are extremely high and economic realities are undeniable." End quote. Movies, in essence, are a creative endeavor among screenwriters, directors, and producers. But like any other, other creative project, the industry relies on iterations and data to refine their products in order to match what audiences want, while at the same time providing just enough novelty to intrigue them. This data doesn't stop once the film is cut. Movie marketers continue to rely heavily on data to optimize their campaigns to bring people into theaters. The techniques they use have a unique origin too. The White House. Presidential Data it's 1996. President Bill Clinton is standing at a podium in front of the Democratic National Convention. Quote, So tonight, let us resolve to build that bridge to the 21st century to meet our challenges and protect our values. End quote. The theme of Clinton's speech was clear. The president and his team had decided he would focus on the values Clinton shared with every single American voter. That word, values, popped up consistently throughout the speech. Quote, if we want to build that bridge to the 21st century, we have to be willing to say loud and clear, if you believe in the values of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, if you are willing to work hard and play by the rules, you are a part of our family, and we're proud to be with you. End quote. That night, the president was acting upon the results of data collected by a pollster via nationwide phone and mall interviews, which are, in fact, interviews conducted in shopping malls. On edge after the 1994 midterm elections, in which the Democrats lost the House of Representatives, the president's team embarked on a practice of ruthlessly, ruthlessly testing their message, choosing ads, and even themes based on what voters best responded to in small testing rooms. Clinton's poll-tested message worked. When Americans voted in 1996, Bill Clinton received 379 electoral votes to Bob Dole's 159. Presidents and pol politicians of both parties and at all levels have since used polling and testing to craft the perfect messages to win elections, gain approval from their constituents, and get bills passed. Similar research helps guide movies to box office success. In the weeks before the movie, the opening of a movie, researchers test the trailers and TV ads that we see. National Research Group's John Penn explains the process, quote, You have a movie, and we're trying to distill the whole movie into its core essence and then try to identify what are the top 10 to 12 different big themes that really make your film compelling and unique. Those are the building blocks for the creative marketing campaign, end quote. 
The goal is to find a good sense of your assets, your liabilities, your key characters, your story hooks, your tagline, so you can come up with a strategic blueprint before you get into testing the visual material. Once the trailer is cut, does the testing stop? Hardly. In the old days of the studio, the studio would show the trailers to selected mall audiences to gauge their feedback. They did this by using a dial test. Viewers would twist the dial to the left or to the right, depending on how much they liked or disliked certain segments of the trailer. The dial test is now often replaced by an online equivalent, the goal being to reach a larger, more representative audience. While filmmakers and studio stakeholders are really after what they are after is maximizing the odds that undecided potential audience members, the equivalent of election swing voters, will buy tickets to a movie. Penn explained, quote, Trailer testing is an iterative process. You're going to go into the lab, if you will, which is talking to consumers either in person or online, and you're going to try out different creative explorations of what you think is the most marketable premise to sell the movie, end quote. Along the way, Testing uncovers key elements to which the audience responds. Quote, You may change up the trailer. You might have different beginnings. You may have different endings. You may play with tone. You may play with music. If it's a comedy, making sure you have at least four or five key hilarious moments in the trailer in two or three in a TV spot. End quote. The use of data doesn't stop here. 24 hours before Election Day, politicians are still polling for clues about how they will fare when constituents finally vote. If they're not making the right progress, they use the data to tweak their strategy. And film studios do the same thing. It's known as tracking. If you think politicians face pressure, for film studios, every weekend is essentially Election Day. Which film will win the box office? In the hope of gaining a competitive advantage, movie researchers survey people nationwide to find out what movies they're most likely to watch. Nina Jacobson explains the process, quote, Tracking is when a market research firm will survey people randomly and say, what movies are com coming out this weekend? In short, do people know that your movie is coming out? This is what is called unaided awareness, and it represents how broadly the marketing has infiltrated the culture. The polls address two additional critical questions. Jacobson explains, then you go, hey, have you heard of Hunger Games? And they respond, oh yeah, I've heard of that. That's aided awareness. Lastly, the pollsters ask respondents if they plan on seeing the movie in question that weekend, which in turn allows movie executives to assess whether or not their ads worked or came up short. Says Jacobson, quote, it is sometimes a very good indicator and you get a sense of whether it's going to be a big opening or a weak opening, end quote. The data may not be precisely predictive, but it can alert filmmakers to potential problems, allowing them to refine or modify their strategies. If a movie is underperforming with a key quadrant, the studio can target a greater percentage of their remaining budget to try to solve the problem. Politicians either win or lose an election, and movies have a similar end game, box office receipts. They are perhaps the ultimate feedback that validates and confirms the assumptions and systems which filmmakers used through their iterations. Across creative fields, data-driven iterations are critical to refining products and messages for the creative curve. In many industries, this requires the use of data, both to test audience responses and to judge whether your effort was successful. By hitting the mark, 
most creative people gain confidence in their creative process. Miss the mark, and they know that somewhere along the line, they made a faulty assumption. If you are an independent creator, this can sound overwhelming. How can you use data if you can't afford expensive tools or technology? To explore this, I talked to someone earlier in their creative career. In the previous chapters, we talked to a handful of romance writers at the top of their field. This time around, I spoke with an up-and-coming writer who has managed to garner a measure of early success without the backing of a major publisher. In part, she did this through the use of free data. Another Side of Heidi By day, Heidi Joy Trethaway works as a corporate marketer in charge of content marketing for tech companies, helping craft content to drive new business leads. By night, Heidi writes what she calls smart smut books. Nestled in her Portland, Oregon home, she stays up every night once her children are asleep, sits down at her computer, and starts typing. Trethaway is a part of the cultural movement that's seen self-published romance authors like Kristen Ashley gain success through unconventional back channels. Trethaway isn't embarrassed about what she does. Quote, I write dirty, I write really dirty books, and it's awesome. End quote. Trethaway is a former customer of mine, and once we were preparing to discuss digital marketing over lunch, she mentioned that she was writing a book. I was soon peppering her with questions and learning about her evening writing hobby as has built her a growing fandom. Trethaway, it turns out, is a popular ebook writer. Her most popular series, Tattoo Thief, has been downloaded on Amazon over 102,000 times. Her writing career began inauspiciously. Her first novel, Won't Last Long, was downloaded only 125 songs. Though she doesn't outsell someone like Kristen Ashley, Trethaway has achieved the level of success that any part-time writer would envy. How did she go from 125 to 102,000? When her first book flopped, Trethaway was depressed. The book had taken her a decade to finish. For her next book, she was determined to do things differently. Rather than wait for a great idea to hit her, Trethaway began building a community of authors and studying story structure. One day, she had the idea of using a house sitter who was also a sexual voyeur as her protagonist. But instead of starting to write, she sat back and listened to what her author community had to say. She quickly gleaned two things. The first was that new adult fiction, that is to say books focusing on characters 18 to 30 years old instead of older characters, were starting to perform really well. And second, for some reason, rock stars made especially popular protagonists at the time. This is why she decided to write her new novel about a young rock star and his voyeuristic house-sitter. Quote, I took my initial idea and fit it into a box that I knew was marketable. It turned out that actually made it extremely marketable. It took off better than it probably had any right to because it hit right in the right zone. End quote. With over 100,000 downloads, Trethaway is now convinced that this kind of analysis is critical to marketing a book. Today, she does this not only by talking to other writers, but also by studying the Kindle sales charts, which allows her to get a strong sense of what's selling and what's relevant. Quote, Right now, stepbrothers are very hot. It kind of makes me want to vomit, but there are so many successful books with these awkward love triangles. End quote. Thanks to her creative community and free Amazon data, Trethaway can better understand what her reading audience cares about. 
What's more, she has used that data to do a lot more than select her genre and narrow down her characters. Romance novels are often written as multi-part series. People read the first book and in the best case scenario get hooked and follow the rest of the series. It's a key part of the romance novel biz business model to the point where many romance novels, romance writers give away their first book for free online, hoping readers will find it so irresistible that they'll buy all the others in the series. For Trethaway, sequels represent an opportunity. Quote, Everyone will tell you don't ever read your reviews. What I learned was people did not like the fact that my main character was offstage for most of the book. End quote. She often discovered that readers disliked a principal second character. Armed with this practical feedback, Trethaway was better able to serve her audience. In sequels, she improved the likability of the character in question and wrote the new male protagonist into the book from the beginning. Then, to help ensure that readers kept on with the series, she tacked on the first few chapters of the next book as a bonus section at the end of the first book. The result? The second book got markedly better reviews than the first. Trethaway may not have been privy to big data, but she was nonetheless able to use publicly available data to help her refine a market opportunity, while also improving the quality of her product. The point I'm trying to make is that data does not have to be expensive or part of some fancy system to be useful. Simple data can be used in any creative field to help someone get better at what they are doing. Painters can get online feedback. Chefs can read their Yelp reviews. Writers can see what topics are doing well on social media. Sure, if you work in a large company and you typically have paid data sources as well as the technology to access them. But even in big companies, many data techniques are decidedly low tech. Ben & Jerry's, for example, sends email surveys out to ice cream fans, which is something anyone can do using free online tools. What's more, many techniques historically used by large companies have now become accessible to small companies and individuals. Google Surveys, for one, allows anyone to assess a targeted group of users for as little as 15 cents per response. For $30, you can assemble 200 people in a mini online focus group. Another service, PickFoo, makes it easy to survey basic split test questions in hours for as little as $20. Again, any creative person can benefit from better understanding their target audience. Instead of seeing creativity as a series of eureka moments and sudden epiphanies, successful creatives who use data-driven iterations are far more likely to master the creative curve. Whether you are a writer, a movie studio, or an ice cream flavor guru, it pays to follow the data-driven steps and really, truly listen to your audience. As I spoke with all kinds of creative people for this book, I was struck by how often their stories mirrored one another. Creative success does indeed have a pattern. The biggest secret to creating something your audience will love? Listen to them. The use of data-driven processes to refine ideas is the fourth and last law of creativity. By this point, you know the history of creativity, the driving forces behind trends, in the four steps that you can take to maximize your odds of creating things that have a chance of going big and wide. This is where I would like to leave you. I hope inspired and newly motivated that you can accomplish great artistic and entrepreneurial feats. But as I was writing this book, one thing kept worrying me. One concern that I need to convey before you embark on your next creative adventure. Thank you for watching. 
Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.